So welcome to uh, this podcast interview with Susan Ferguson. My name is Maud Perrier and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Bristol and I'm really delighted to be um, interviewing Susan about her latest book, Women and Work, Feminism, Labour and Social Reproduction, which was published by Pluto Press in December 2019. So welcome, Susan. Thank you, Maud. It's really nice to have an interview with you. I'm looking forward to this. Great. Um, I'm really thankful to you for having written this book. I think um, it's do, it's um, a, a wonderfully uh, incisive book that gives a really um, distinctive um, analysis of the development of social reproduction theory um, that historicizes its development from the 18th century and shows how its fault lines and its blind spots, especially its race blind spots, emerged, but also how they continue today. So the book is historical, but it's also incredibly current. It's also um, a call for um, a feminist movement to be uh, at the center of anti-oppression politics, um, but also a call for doing social reproduction feminism slightly differently, I think, and with perhaps less of a focus on um, uh, striking from unpaid work, or at least uh, striking from um, uh, both uh, productive and reproductive labor. So, yes, it, I mean, it, it tries to take up some of the more recent developments in social reproduction feminism that try to think through what are the, you know, tries to think through the, the significance and importance of, of solid, anti-oppression solidarity um, through uh, a socialist framework, really. And uh, so, yes, I, thanks. I, that's a nice summary of the book. And, and um, I did try to do both that kind of historical positioning of uh, feminist thinking about work uh, as a whole, but also with kind of a more zeroed-in focus on, on social reproduction feminism, where it came from, and where I think it can go, I guess, is... <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the way that you bring to light um, less well-known, or at least less well-known to me, um, socialist thinkers, including um, Arno, Arno Wheeler and William Thompson. And I was, and um, you you write um, really uh, eloquently about their their book, um, The Appeal, and mm -hmm. um, and you write. Um, that um, the significance and the originality of the appeal um, is that it's the, the, the most coherent and sustained feminist analysis to emerge from 19th century utopian socialism. Um, so I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about who Anna Wheeler and William Thompson were and why that their analysis was so significant and sort of what led you to, to sort of um, to, to them and um, and perhaps also why they've been sort of um, slightly ignored, maybe. Sure. So I think maybe starting with what led me to them is that it's actually, I did my PhD thesis in the early 90s on William Thompson in particular. Um, and I had come across him in a course that was really, that looked at kind of the pre-Marxian um, political economists and was interested uh, in him in particular because of the way in which he was approaching feminist ideas 
um, in his book, which uh, is an 1824 book called The Inquiry, it's very long, Inquiry into the Principles of the Distribution of Wealth, blah, 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 it continues on, um, but the title, that is. Uh, but he was taking, you know, he had a very, I think, prescient um, analysis of uh, capitalism that, um, you know, Pre, that anticipated some of what Marx was writing, and um, but also he included in his analysis. So Marx, of course, focuses on uh, productive wage labor, uh, but he, you know, had this broader conception of what labor is, and uh, so he he started talking as well about household labor and the labor that women do, and 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 had a way of integrating kind of an anti-oppression um, perspective into his political economy. And so, but as Ben, of course, after uh, his inquiry, his book on, called The Inquiry, he worked on the appeal with Anna Wheeler, and he, Anna Wheeler is not on the, um, uh, she's not given credit on the title page of that book, because I'm not sure whether it was she did not want it or whether um, I, I can only presume that because he then goes on at length in his acknowledgments about how she really wrote the book. So uh, anyway, so the two of them co-wrote the book essentially, even though she, her name is not on the on the title page. Uh, and that was in 1825, the appeal, um, and there they developed some of those ideas that were that that Thompson had already been um, had written about in the inquiry. So these were Irish utopian socialists um, active in you know the utopian socialist movement in the 1820s, and um, Anna Wheeler in particular had been uh, sort of traveling between France and and England and had um, was one of uh, Fourier's trans Charles Fourier's translators. And uh, yeah, so they they put together this analysis, which actually, as I say, took took the whole idea of the way in which we create our world, that is through our labor, <laughs> um, means looking at everybody's labor. And uh, so, if that's the case, why we have to start thinking about how it is that women's labor contributes to capitalism. And so that's. Um, that was the beginning. Sorry, and I, now I've lost a little bit of track of some of the other questions that came along with that. But that was that's kind of the the genesis of, of my interest in them and what they did that was kind of significant. I think you asked also why they've been ignored. Yes, Is that that's, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think so they've. I think. Um, I you know that's a difficult thing. I think in part. Uh, they suffered the fate of utopian socialism generally, that, that um, people uh, found that the prefigurative communitarian experiments that were going on were not sustainable. So that was, um, you know, that was part of it. You have the rise of, quote, scientific socialism, which I would argue is more continuous with some, with some of that some of those political economic elements of utopian socialism than is often um, uh, understood to be. But, but so I think that, you know, one of the reasons is that, that um, just sort of, you know, their, their moment in time 
got eclipsed a little bit by mm. uh, by a more male dominated, um, less feminist um, look sort of period. It's also a period when you get the introduction of protective legislation and there's a cultural shift towards women retreating more from the public sphere. So I think all of that has something to do with it. But I think in terms of their ideas, so within the socialist movement, you do get a, cert, a certain form of socialist feminism, which I call, in, my, in the book, I, I sort of call it critical equality feminism, that arises um, a, within the socialist movement of, that is a, an attempt to kind of tack feminist struggles onto the um, working class struggle. And so, yeah. and I think that comes because of the influence of Engels. I think Engel, August Babel and Frederick Engels have, um, you know, sort of take that perspective and that they are central figures, intellectual figures in, in the socialist movement. And so they've put their stamp on, you know, socialist feminism in that regard. And so they get, they get eclipsed. But, I, you know, there's a sense in which the, um, you know, sorry, so in part of what, what that, what their argument is, is that, yes, um, housework has something to do with, or, you know, women's labor has something to do with their, with their um, oppression, but they actually locate the oppression itself in the, the um, patriarchal relationships of, that, that persist within the household, and they stop thinking about it so much in relation to the what that work does in relation to what social reproductive work does in relation to capitalism and how capitalism can't contain it completely or can't has you know it has this kind of contradictory relationship to that social reproductive work so so I think what happens is that the um, critical equality feminism approach that says really the problem is housework itself and the gender division of labor um, that it um, it appeals to a certain surface reality, right? I mean, it, that's what it feels like to be oppressed for a lot of women, with, and and so there's some there, it's, there's a level at which that is very true, um, but it doesn't explain why it keeps getting reproduced within capitalism and how and why and and how it is that the fight against oppression. Um, women's oppression can, is actually a working class fight itself. So I don't know if that's clear, but... Yes, um, that's really um, yes. a great sort of insight into um, how their uh, particular analysis of the relationship between um, patriarchy and capitalism um, was partly um, sort of um, neglected or erased and in the rest of the book, there's other. I won't. I won't spoil it for those who haven't read it yet. But there's other uh, times where you um, you highlight the way that um, uh, other socialist or feminist thinkers were um, sort of um, uh, sometimes even willfully erased by um, other by the Communist Party or by other sort of um, thinkers, yeah. um, which um, leads me to uh, one of the things I found really interesting was how the book was. Uh, really about the the theoretical development of um, socialist feminist thought, but also about its relationship to um, uh, a movement. And mm. so uh, you talk at various points about um, uh, the women's chartist strikes, 
and how it waned uh, from the 1850s and then um, in the sort of later chapter you um, you draw on the wages for housework campaigns of course and in the final chapter the sort of uh, international women's strike um, today mm -hmm. so I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how do you sort of conceive of the relationship between uh, the sort of um, the feminist movement on the one hand and um, uh, socialist feminist thought on the others because you're you're, you're sort of um, weaving back and forth between the sort of um, intellectual insights but also the insights from um, the movement uh, sort of uh, movement and the organizing and how those are maybe different types of uh, uh, they're connected knowledges but they they sort of bring different things to your analysis I think yeah I mean I think they there is that um, flow of ideas between um, feminist movement on the one hand, the socialist movement on the other hand, and the party apparatus um, and, you know, party intellectuals, I guess, um, that have varied throughout. And then even socialist feminist thought as it develops both as part of a movement, but also as part of a um, intellectual current in the academia, uh, in the academy. So there's, I mean, there's all kinds of kind of different ingredients that come together there. And one of the things, I don't know if this will quite answer the question spot on in the same way, but one of the things that was in my mind was I grew up um, or came to these ideas um, really thinking kind of rigidly, this is in the 80s, you know, thinking kind of rigidly around, okay, there's socialist feminism, there's liberal feminism, there's radical feminism, and I guess there's a conservative feminism, although that actually, I, I think I appreciate more now <laughs> with, with kind of the, the corporate feminist kind of um, Hillary Clintonites. Um, it seems like it's a stronger thing now, but I, but I was really focused on liberal, radical, and socialist feminism. And I thought of those as discrete um, approaches and it confused me for a long time about the socialist feminism because I could also see how there were elements of socialist feminism that I thought were kind of liberal and I and in and so I but I but yet they were still socialist feminism because they were still connecting to a class a critical um stance on class often so I so anyway so part so when I wrote the book part of me was like okay well let's let's see if I jettison those categories what happens in terms of my thinking through of these questions. And, you know, lo and behold, I sort of realized, oh yeah, that actually, I think those categories sort of hampered my understanding in some ways, um, because in fact, the flow of ideas is much more malleable and much more, and, and people pick up on parts of analyses and inter integrate them into new other parts of analyses and um, as they develop them and they leave others behind, you know, so it's a very, it's a messy process, the development of ideas. and. And it's always a contested process, and um, so it's and it's never just an intellectual process either. So there, it's there's also you know what is happening on the ground, what's happening in those utopian socialist communities that you know is it is or isn't playing out you know the ideals that people that people think that they're playing out, or what's happening in the communist party that is. Um, uh, you know, actually physically stopping uh, certain ideas from being promoted. And, you know, so there, so anyway, this is kind of a long-winded um, 
way of just simply agreeing with you. I guess it, there's a, there is a very complex kind of movement between between these. It's not that you can't talk about them as separate things. There is clearly a pole of feminist ideas where I think there's um, uh, that can be more or less socialist, and then there's a pole, a group of socialist ideas or a tradition of socialism that can be more or less feminist. And, you know, I'm particularly interested in where those two intersect, but, um, and I think they do intersect in thing precisely, you know, the area, the IW, the international women's strike that you mentioned and, and wages for housework. And uh, so they, but it's a messy thing to kind of sort through. And I don't think I've come up with, I think what I've done is come up with a kind of a way of looking at that. Um, I think there are, I'm sure there are, and plenty of other really good ways of looking at it too. But I, but I think focusing on precise, particularly what these ideas say about labor, how they think about what labor is and what role it plays in capitalism is one way of time of trying to find a thread that can make sense of how some of those ideas have moved through time yes uh, that's um that messiness is really important isn't it and that is that does get erased in how we teach um feminist theory um i definitely uh, can um, relate to what you were saying about the, that kind of typology of you know these three kinds of feminism and it's something that i continue to struggle with uh, mm -hmm. when I teach feminist theory as well, of uh, how do you sort of make a, a huge body sort of uh, thought sort of um, uh, approachable or, or, or sort of uh, mm -hmm. as, as having these distinct perspectives, and yet you don't, you sort of um, uh, make students sort of um, cognizant of the, um, the lines of... Um, of rupture actually that existed within those categories so so I think that's that's really important but it's also really difficult to do at, mm -hmm. um, uh, in terms of of, um, of a pedagogy isn't it yes yes it is and I one of the things like even in my own ability to understand anything usually I have to set up something that I'm against <laughs> like I, you know I, I, I try to think okay um, what's the other way of looking at this that I disagree with, and then I can start to think about what I agree with, and I and I, so and so I think too one of the things that I that I found in going through, especially looking through critical equality feminism and social reproduction feminism, and the degree to which they overlap, and and the degree to which they they slip into each other's paradigms um, at times. I you know I I I had to kind of really push against my tendency to, to look for antagonistic elements in theory and in fact had to think okay think more about how they relate and what's in, influential on the other and just accept that there's going to be some fuzziness too and that's hard and that's very hard to teach students I totally agree like that's a very diff you know who want to have something really definitive often because it helps them understand and I and you know, maybe you need to go through both stages a little bit too. Maybe you need to have a bit of that kind of, okay, we're going to clearly differentiate. And that I do that a little bit. So like I'm still doing that in the book at the end of the book where I'm talking about the different 
types of social reproduction feminism that are out there today, the kind of more autonomous Marxist and then the more what I call Marxian school of, of social reproduction theory. Um, so, you know, I, I'm purposefully at the end of the book differentiating again in a way that I think is a little bit forced, you know, because I don't, I, but not entirely because I think there are really important distinctions there at the same time. So it's a, it's a tough business. Theory is tough to, to teach. It's tough to, to, um, to grasp and, and understand, although um, I think there are ways <laughs> to do it, but, it, but it, it's, yes. yeah. <laughs> One of the qualities of the writing that I re appreciated is um, your attempt to stress uh, commonalities, um, even as you differentiate your perspectives from that of um, autonomists, uh, that you're still thinking about uh, the, the points of connections as well. Um, so maybe we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, towards the end, but I, I wanted to move on to ask you about um, the um, the way the book is uh, saying something I think that is um, quite uh, significant is the, the sort of willful neglect of uh, black feminist thought and white feminist inability to hear that domestic work is not always unpaid and that not all women um, see the work they do to sort of um, um, resource or maintain their families and their communities as oppressive and that actually that, that, that too narrow an emphasis on unpaid domestic work might, uh, results in universalizing white western women's experiences and that actually you sort of show how that happens historically but also I think how some social reproduction feminism continues to sustain that blind spot today. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, that's the way I understood the book, but I, I wanted to ask you uh, a bit about what are the implications of that argument for the, um, the feminist movement today, and do you think that what needs to happen, um, you suggest, is, is movement building across both productive and reproductive sectors for the women's strike, but um, you say that it also might mean adopting less focus on uh, the social reproductive strike? So let me say, there are a couple of things I just sort of want to um, clarify, I think, in that question. The, way, the one is that it's true, I do, the book goes through and, and kind of tries to map out a little bit, you know, why the white feminist tradition ignores um, the black feminist tradition, which has been there as, you know, long as the white feminist tradition and, and has been making very important points, right, you know, from the 1820s on about, about um, black women's racialized labor. And so, you know, and, and so it's so striking that it, it ignores it. And it, it does so so what i'm trying to say is it ignores it in the face of all this evidence and and you know opportunity to to engage with with um black feminists who are doing um or anti-racist feminists i guess just to use a broader term i think um and more historically accurate term um anti-racist feminists who, who are doing um some really saying some really interesting things about work um but i think when you get into the uh you know, 1970s, uh, 60s, and 70s, what happens is it's not so much that the white feminists don't see that there's an issue, 
but that they the the problem is that they just cannot accept that it is their issue you know that it and that it so that that the anti-racist struggle which i think a lot of them did and, and quite genuinely support but uh, but they don't see that that means that they need to re that they need to challenge their thinking in in um and particularly they're thinking about the universalization of of housework as a um, you know, the experience of women's oppression because, and so, so, and in that sense, it's willful, I guess, in, in the sense that, you know, there's just, it's a, it's a neglect, um, that, that is not, can't be just simply explained, um, by, by, um, their, you know, ignorance, <laughs> whatever, right? It, it's got to be something about, they, there's this, and I I don't really know exactly why why um, there is such a gap there and such an such an inability to, to come to grips with it. Except that I guess there's a feeling that the idea of housework is being oppressive in and of itself is so powerful and resonates so strongly with the white women who are arguing it. You know, I don't I don't know um, that they think that they that you know or that they just can't see past having to, to figure that out. I do think, though, in the last um, 30, 40 years, um, 20, 30 years, whatever, they, that um, there's been, well, what I think what's happened is, um, you know, the feminism theory and, and the focus on the house, on housework as a whole throughout feminism has kind of retreated while, um, be, and, in part out of an awareness that, that there's a problem with that analysis because it does universalize white women's um, experience or certain white women's, not all white women's experience, of course, but, um, but so, so I think that's happened um, and that there's been kind of a shift to sort of, and a nod now to intersectionality and to, and to saying, you know, no, or, you know, these things are, have their kind of unique expressions uh, depending on um, a person's um, racial identity, their you know whether they're indigenous or not, whether blah blah blah, you know, continuing on with the, the various oppressions. Um, so I think there's kind of an acknowledgement of that, but there hasn't been a theorization of it that, or there, there you know, for the most part, there hasn't been a, a, a strong theorization of that, and um, and what that means and how that's affected theories around housework so so that's what i try to do when i try to pull out this social reproduction the new the newer generation of social reproduction theory theorizing that's going on right now i think that's an attempt to try to say okay um we don't want to jettison everything about the idea of social reproductive labor we just don't want to make it focused purely on the household and the housework because because we know that that's not um, a accurate or resonant um, um, category for to, to talk about oppression with for uh, all sorts of people so um, I think the, the the kind of widening up that Lisa Vogel allows, you know, her, that her kind of framework allows us to do, the widening up of thinking about what social reproductive labor is and the kind of de detaching it from solely being uh, something based in the household 
uh, private households, it gives us kind of a theoretical grounding on which to start um, talking about a more integrated analysis. So, um, so that's sorry. That was sort of all on the kind of the first commentary, just to sort of be clear about what I'm saying there. Um, but in terms of the social reproductive strike, then to get to that question, um, so it's not that um, there should be less focus on the social reproductive strike, but that the social reproductive strike um, needs to be thought about in a particular way, because in fact. Or, and social reproduction needs to be thought about it. Um, at this, social reproduction politics need to be thought about in, this, in a particular way because you know one of the things that I try to or emphasize is that social reproduction, uh, social reproductive labor happens in private homes. It happens in communities. It happens in workplaces. It can be productive labor, and that it can be labor that is that is done. Um, not just for a wage, but but done that actually creates capitalist value. Um, it can be labor that uh, is done for a wage, but doesn't create capitalist value. So I, there's it's a very broad category. So it's a, it's I keep thinking you're you know I don't know if you know Holly Lewis's book The Theory of Everything, but it's um, it, or the Politics of Every of Everything. Sorry, I might have the title wrong, um, but it's it's a bit like that social reproductive. Um, labor thinking about about the politics of social reproduction is kind of like a politics of everything and because it spans so much it spans a formal um workplace and it spans informal workplaces and and it, the non non um workplaces or so-called non-workplaces so uh so it's very very broad in that sense so i think what i'm trying to argue is that the social reproductive strike is important, but it's one that has to be seen in this broad sense that it that um, there are different nodes of social reproduction uh, strikes where sometimes there are paid workplaces like the teacher strikes that have been so amazing throughout the U.S. Um, in the last couple of years. Um, but so you know, but there's also it's the there's so that's one node but there's also things like the international women's strike which happens to be kind of on which happens on a um annual basis march 8th and they and takes different forms in different um countries but is a mass movement of people who are anti who are largely um focused on anti-oppression politics coming out on the streets and trying and trying to you know take over some of the usual places of 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 um, everyday life under capitalism and and assert you know what's important to creating life as opposed to creating profit and so I think like those those are incredibly important so what I'm trying to say is yes those are very important but they're only going to work in the long run against capitalism if you also think of them in connection with um, you know direct workplace um, actions at productive workplaces like you know, Toyota or Google or whatever, um, and they're also going to and and those kind of um, traditional conventional um, workplace um, actions uh, like strikes or whatever um, will only ever work and spread if they also take on board um, some of the concerns that people who are striking around social reproduction are have. So does that? Help? <laughs> yes, I think so. Yes, I I was thinking about how the international women's strike is trying to um, organize on uh, 
those sorts of bases, um, um, but also the uh, the challenges of doing that. So one of the things that they've been doing in the UK and maybe elsewhere are um, mothers on strike mm -hmm. events where um, uh, uh, women and some men and children uh, occupy community spaces, um, mm. and um, and sometimes uh, there are. Um, uh, there are some people taking it in turns to look after children, or the children are uh, amidst the the adults. But um, one of the issues that keeps coming up in some of the discussions around those issues is, uh, well, how about occupying uh, sort of um, workplaces or conventional workplaces with right. the children, right? So how do we sort of move from, uh, yes, uh, sort of making that labor visible, and um, sort of um, uh, striking from care and the impossibility of doing that to an attention to where that happens, which right. strikes me as really important. Right. Yeah. And for sure. And I that's that's interesting. And and um, I think that's precisely the sort of thing I'm trying to get at, which is that sense that it's there is a connection. There is an internal inherent connection between occupying a workplace and um, and an IWS, uh, International Women's uh, Strike on the streets or whatever, or a, um, you know, taking over a public space like an, an Occupy uh, movement did or whatever. So that there's an internal connection there because, because they are both working to, um, to claw back <laughs> uh, some aspect of uh, and resources for and control over our ability to um, make our lives, um, to create, you know, the types of lives worth living, basically. Uh, and But they have to claw that back from capital's control, whether it's capital that, that's kind of organizing it through the state um, or whether it's capital directly um, organizing a workplace, I think. there. But that's a point of connection. And that's the same point of connection with, you know, an anti-racist struggle that is um, against policing in schools or whatever, you know, putting cops in schools that, that, you know, the idea that we want people to have live fear-free lives and be able to go to school without being harassed or whatever. And that, though, that's, that's the same, you know, those things are all connected. Like, I do think there is a line that you can draw through. Um, through any kind of democratic from below attempts to try and control the conditions in which we live and the conditions that make life worth living too. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so in um, in connection with anti-oppression strikes, um, I was wondering if you could say something about what you see the role of unions and other workers' organization right. being in this at this particular moment, given that. Um, unionization in the private and the informal sectors where um, many um, racialized and migrant women workers are located is um, a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. So, right, that's a great question. And I think, so one of the first things I would say is that, um, I, I mean, I'm totally pro-union and I and, and think they're very important, but it's also important to remember that they're not the um, they haven't even always been the most progressive and, and you know, uh, advanced 
part of the labor movement, right? They People often go out and on wildcat strikes or whatever, they do things without unions too. <laughs> and unions can play, of course, a, a, a regressive role if they're, depending on, on how entrenched they are and how little or much control there is of their um, membership from above. But... But that said, I do think it's, uh, I'd rather be in a unionized workplace, especially if I was a uh, marginalized um, person um, working, you know, inflexible in or a, a so-called flexible job or whatever. Um, but so because there is greater strength in in uh, numbers in that sense and and in just in the organization of, of people we you know folks from below have to organize because uh, capital is highly organized from above and the only chance we have to kind of um, pushback will be through through some forms of organization whether they're unions as we think of them now or whether they're transformed type of organization that's that's union like or whatever I don't I, I think that's an interesting question that could be uh, further discussed but I think if unions are to be relevant and and, and a vibrant part of a, of a anti-capitalist movement they I mean first of all they absolutely have to double redouble efforts to to organize in precisely in the lowest paid, um, racialized, feminized um, workforces that are out there and which are a lot of social reproduction um, workforces actually, you know, workforces engaged in doing social reproductive labor, whether it's cleaning um, or, uh, um, you know, food prep, etc. So, um, but, and I think to do that then they, or the way that they need to do that is precisely by not simply taking on what are traditional workplace issues, but by by addressing things that actually matter to the people who are to their workers that matter as well to their workers. I mean, obviously, their workers worry about about their wage rates and benefits and stuff, but they do. I think unions would do well to take on issues of sexual harassment and of racial harassment or of health care access um, or of citizenship demands and uh, or demands for daycare and those sorts of things that are not you know seen as traditional union issues um, so I think within when the people they're trying to organize I think they would do well to 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 make that the forefront of much of their organizing <laughs> but i think they also on the other hand then need to make the effort to show up to things like black life matters uh land defender um uh demonstrations iws though you know like i think they need to have a, pre a physical presence there and 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 offer support and resources to those groups too because that's how solidarity is built like by physically uh and you know, physically showing support and 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 building trust between the two between groups. So, um, I mean, I think there's that's at a general level. I think what I would say. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I was also wanting to ask you about the types of examples of labor that you use um, in the book. Um, mm. And I, I really um, noticed how um, you have a, a differentiated analysis of labor. So, for example, you you highlight how um, being a domestic worker or doing manual labor was um, a catalyst, often, to the insights of uh, the theorists that you um, that you write about, like um, 
like uh, Maria Stewart, I think. Mm-hmm. But that seemed really to be quite different to the way the examples you use in the final chapter, mm. where you foreground teachers and you you cite um, Eric Blanc's book Red Revolt, mm-hmm. and you the way I read that chapter, you seem to be um, saying that teachers have a sort of unique role to play in the struggle against capital. Um, or maybe not that it should only be teachers, but you know there's something specific about their their type of labor or the types of um, um, conditions uh, of of production that they are working under. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you choose that particular example uh, rather than say domestic workers organizing or right. um, Uber platform workers um, strikes, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think I used it because there was this sort of dramatic, great examples in recent history of, of the teacher's strike. So I think, you know, it was a, in some ways an impressionistic use of uh, just, I'm going to draw on this because it's, um, um, because it's been recent, there's a recent example, and it's one that I knew, like you could also say the same, I know Linda Briskin, for instance, does really good work on on nurses and their and their labor, and I, you know, like I'm sure there were other um, groups and that you could draw on to make similar examples. I think I was, that one just seemed to stand out to me as a recent topical one that people will have heard of and, and know a little bit about, um, maybe just by following the news or whatever. Um, it's, you know, I think the where because it because teachers are engaged and they're public school teachers which is important to point out because they're public sector they are not doing their work for um a profit uh you know to for somebody else to to take a profit from um they are collectivized in a way that domestic workers are not as as collectivized so they have a collective responsibility for a collective group of students and they are implanted in a in a community um, in as and seen as people who are responsible for other people's social reproductive needs right so I so I think that that differentiates them a little bit from some of the other forms of work, workers that you mentioned but not to say that other forms of workers don't have those kind of concerns or capacities but I think built into certain jobs like teaching like nursing um, and I mean, those are probably the biggest ones I can think of, but they, but they, um, but in built into certain jobs is a care for, um, the client that is, uh, that, that is recognized by the community that is, that, that, um, has a kind of, um, and therefore has, um, almost not a natural, that's the wrong word, but, but has, um, organic kind of um, capacity to develop outward to you know to to bring in people like parents and uh, you know um, other community groups that are servicing the same community um, those those kind of um, groups so that there's so got a, a more or there's an organic connection there that I think we can take advantage of as, as socialist feminists um, who are interested in building solidarity. And it's you can do the same 
with pretty much any workplace like you think of, I think of minor strikes in, in Ontario back in the 70s where communities got behind the miners, you know, like it, it happens. So it's not that it doesn't happen elsewhere, but I just, but I, but I think that there's um, an inbuilt kind of um, structural, maybe is a word, advantage to, to certain, to strikes in certain social reproductive sectors that makes it a little bit easier, I guess, to happen or, or, yeah, it happens a bit more organically, but that's a fairly impressionistic argument. I have to, I have to admit, and um, you know, it needs more empirical research for sure. To I think to really um, bolster it. Mm -hmm. But you make sense. Like it is interesting for me to think that through a, a little bit more. Just a, from your question, I, 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 I would hope somebody does do the research because I, I think it would be it's an important area to explore more. I was thinking about uh, how, um, you know, the teaching profession is sort of internally uh, sort of um, racially and gender mm. and class unequal and how some, some jobs like teaching assistants uh, or, um, are um, less protected or have um, uh, uh, sort of separate unions or, or um, so how their capacity for taking part in in that movement um, is also um, um, affected. So mm -hmm. I think uh, I think your example of sort of public workers and healthcare and teaching are really important. But yeah, I think the the sort of um, mm -hmm. the empirical research uh, sh sort of shows how internally um, mm -hmm. um, divided some, not all, um, sort of professions yeah. um, continue to be. Yeah, and I think that's true of nursing too. Actually, when you and but I and so I think, yeah, and those are and those are things that you know you need the politics within the union to to argue through, right? And to and to say we need to be supporting and advancing the um, the causes of the most precarious workers amongst us. Like, and that happens in certain cases like that, but it doesn't necessarily happen naturally. Like, I, and that, I wouldn't want to make that argument that, like, I think you really need to have uh, those arguments out. Um, and, um, you know, the on the other side, the flip side of, of all that is that I think teachers are in public school systems and nursing, you know, in, in public systems too, um, are well aware too of how, their um, their jobs are serve service racialized and and help to reinforce racialization in the in the broader community too. So there's also that other side to it, you know, to, that that um, you can have um, teachers who might be aware of the racialization of the students that are going on within you know any any public school that you know teacher who's visited. A school in a upper middle class neighborhood versus one in a in a uh, more struggling working class neighborhood is can see that just by the number of resources at a particular school. So you know you have that on the one hand, and so to be able to connect their understanding of how that's a problem to perhaps their understanding of how their own workforce is internally racially and feminine probably feministically or gendered i guess is a word um uh divided and 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 segregated is is um would be an interesting 
you know, thing I th would be an interesting entry point into that discussion or debate within the union. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I have a couple of sort of final questions, uh, and um, we are speaking on the 19th of March 2020, so we're in the middle of the COVID-19 um, catastrophe. And um, I guess some on the on the critical left might see the current moment as um, a sort of opportunity for um, movement building and organizing, whilst others might see it as actually um, retrenching and a sort of um, re-embedding of capitalism that actually um, neglects the, the, the idea that we're in a permanent crisis um, mm. in some way. And mm -hmm. I just wondered how, how would you sort of read um, the current situation in terms of the, the struggle between life and capital, which is one of the, mm -hmm. the things that your, your book writes about, that mm -hmm. it's precisely because socially reproductive labor is distinct from um, capitalistically productive labor that it's able to resist some of the most alienating sort of um, pressures. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what's really unfortunate, of course, well, many things are unfortunate about this period right now, um, but one thing is that, you know, is, is characteristic of most um, places right now, as I know them, is that people have the the retrenchment, the self-isolation or the, the quarantining of, of people involves and social isolation involves precisely that, isolating back into the private sphere, you know, away from any, from many of the forms of socialized social reproduction that we, that do go on under capitalism, like schools are closed, you can't, uh, you can't get the same access to healthcare as you, as you once could uh, a few weeks ago, uh, even going out for a coffee um, at, uh, you know, whatever a neighborhood place or whatever is is um or beer or whatever is um impossible so in many many places so um so that's led to a re a, you know an intensification of the privatization of social reproduction in this moment so that's happening on the one hand on the other hand what i find just fascinating is the degree to which the state and capital uh, are coordinating to actually take some responsibility now for the social reproduction of people to the point that, you know, Trump is talking about sending everybody a thousand checks for a thousand dollars. All of a sudden in Texas, Medicaid has been um, opened up and people can get tested for free now. And, you know, and that's both insurance companies and the state kind of working together to, to make that happen. So you can see in a flash a couple of things that are interesting, you know, and, well, and just for goodness sake, in Spain, you have hospital, private hospitals who have been socialized now, you know, so you can see in a flash how the capacity to actually provide for life making is pretty powerful. It's, it's there, um, but it's obviously being done in this current situation through a kind of command economy. Um, situation where you know so it's being done um, to to you know not be, 
because people themselves are taking control of those situations, but because um, they're they're just simply being given the resources that they didn't have before. So I think the left in that that sort of situation has to start to a point out that that capacity is there. The state has shown and capital has shown that they can actually provide resources for making people's lives better. But B, of course, argue that this is something that, um, you know, is, as you say, this is, you know, this crisis of uh, social reproduction that we're going through right now in a very literal way that we people will not, you know, people are dying and certainly if this um, COVID-19 was let loose on the population and people didn't self-quarantine uh, and self-isolate, I mean, they, um, uh, you know, there would, there would be the, a very serious reduction in the population. And so, so um, the, I think, you know, people need to to point out that this is not, not this is a extension of a dynamic that's already in the system because uh, because capital has has uh, refused to adequately provide for our reproduction but and so that it's not something that will just will just get over. Um, I don't know, you know, how the left makes these arguments in a situation where it's meetings of more than 50 people are banned and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I don't, I don't know, obviously, through social media, it's very, will be very important for that. Um, but I don't think this is a point at which you're seeing, there's a lot of opportunity for people to come together to create new ways of, of being in the world, which is sort of what I think, of, you know, a, a real um, robust social reproduction politics is is about trying to sort of help people see that it's possible to and um, to create new ways of being in the world and so and 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 in so doing give them you know have them um, uh, feel and experience those new ways of being in the world. That's not really possible, I think, in this situation. But I do think that what is possible is to say, look, the, we can see how the resources are there. We see, like, in, in again, in Houston, the schools are still feeding students, which is really interesting and really good. Like, so I think, like, things can happen in, and in different ways, and that this, I guess, shows us that it's happening a little bit in different ways, but obviously it's not um, enough, and, and uh, it should, best case scenario, I think this is a, um, you know, a example, a strong example, a visceral example for people of, of why um, the system can't handle or, or, or why the system, it, it tends towards these um, crises and, uh, you know, a way to begin to argue that the resources are there that we can actually um, do a better job of, of looking after people's life-making capacities. But, but I don't, you know, I don't want to make too much more of that, and I don't know whether, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a difficult time and, and to, to say much about what the left can do right here in the moment, and I, maybe other people might have better ideas around that, but I think hmm. I've rambled there. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, thank you. That's, um, it's really, I think, important to think about, um, yes, how um, social reproduction um, thought can um, give us sort of ways of making sense of these really difficult, tragic circumstances, both on a sort of individual and collective basis. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I agree that this care crisis is um, uh, ongoing and um, and what's happening right now is um, a sort of um, is not disconnected from that clearly mm -hmm. um, and um, and I think it will be um, it will be uh, important to see how um, not just the most vulnerable workers but um, how um, refugees and prisoners and these other yeah. groups are um, sort of um, maybe left behind from oh. some of the responses by the state. Oh, I know. And I think, it, you know, I had an email in my um, inbox today about Gaza and, the, you know, the, the way in which the sanctions in Gaza are essentially condemning a whole population to death. Like, it, and right now because of COVID-19. And I mean, it's, it, that's so appalling and awful as, and uh, absolutely, as you say, the, you know, what does Trump's thousand dollar check do for the homeless person and what, do, you know, and, and who will not receive it and where, like, so those sorts of things will be exacerbated too at the same time that, that the state is stepping in to help some people, it's not helping everybody. Um, so and that, yeah, and so I guess this this period also highlights those intense uh, highlights and intensifies those inequalities and and um, oppress oppressive conditions, which is sad and awful, and makes it all the more important to see why it's so important to fight against, you know, fight for rights of migrants and for the people of Gaza for, you know, so all sorts of, um, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll stop there. Thank you. That's, um, that's really, um, great to have had the chance to talk to you about the book, but also to, um, talk to you about the, um, um, the current sort of political situation. So um, I'd like to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with me on behalf of the Futures of Work team and, um, and hope that uh, you and um, your close ones are keeping well. Thank you, Maude. It's really been a pleasure. Really enjoyed the stimulating discussion, really interesting discussion. So um, thanks. And uh, yes, yeah, same to you and, and uh, all the folks at Futures of Work too.